This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. Well, this morning we have had a speech from GCHQ director Jeremy Fleming, who has been talking about the progress or lack of of Russia's war in Ukraine. James, what's he been saying? So I think this is part of a concerted Five Eyes attempt, he's made the speech in Australia, to, to release more and more intelligence as a kind of almost a way of saying to the Russians, we A, know what you're up to, and also I think, I suspect to say, discord in Russian ranks. He says that they've seen evidence of uh, Russian forces sabotaging their own vehicles so that they don't have to go into the fight. He says that they've accidentally shot down their own planes by mistake because there's such a, a lack of communication. And then both... Uh, the US and the UK are saying that Vladimir Putin is not being told the truth by his advisors about the state of the military campaign going on there and that there is growing tensions between the Kremlin and and the Russian Ministry of Defense now the Russians have come out and said this is rubbish you know they would say that wouldn't they and denied it all but i think what is quite clear is that Putin made a a series of miscalculations that you have to believe is either based on false information he has received or shows that he is not listening to those around him. So in Whitehall, there are two things that are now taken as kind of common currency. One is that if you remember in days before the invasion, when he upbraids that spy chief saying... Just, just tell me, tell me, do you agree with the policy or not? And he gets it wrong and suggests the policy is to annex rather than to invent, you know, or recognise. That is because there was a tension because he was being warned by this man that the intelligence that the Russians were receiving was that there would be much more resistance than expected. While Putin was convinced that, you know, in, in the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, you know, they would be welcomed with open arms. And then I think the second thing we see, which is something that Western intelligence is, is, is that the FSB have been basically saying we have all these paid agents in Ukraine who are kind of ready to come up. And it, and it increasingly looks like an expenses scam. But they were basically putting people through, taking the money, and there wasn't actually this kind of, this kind of fifth column ready to rise up the, mo- the moment the Russians en- entered the country. So I think we see this continuing proactive use of intelligence to try and say we know what you're doing and to cause trouble within the Russian camp and I think we will see more of this as this goes on but I think the bigger debate now is the the, the, the western strategy which I think the west in some ways has stumbled upon so far has been remarkably successful in slowing down the Russian advance but there is now now another question which is if this is not going to turn into a long attritional war essentially akin to the war that's been been fought in the east of ukraine for seven or eight years now then the ukrainians are going to have to be provided with more armor and that is why Zelensky is making these requests for tanks he what he wants the tanks not only to try and retake territory but also to try and say to his people look you know for morale to say look there is a way that this war can end that we're way that we can liberate this territory that, that, that the russians ha- have seized so far so, and I mean, this now is a question of whether NATO can change the nature of the military support office. You again see the UK trying to get out in front. Boris Johnson talking about sending more armour to, to Ukraine, more armoured vehicles to Ukraine at the liaison committee yesterday. 
We know it's going to be difficult in that Emmanuel Macron has described the kind of sending tanks to Ukraine as a, as a red line. But I think the idea of simply providing Ukraine with defensive weaponry, that can stop the Russians from winning, but it can't enable the Ukrainians to win full stop. And that, I think, is going to become the new debate in NATO and the Western alliance. Katie, there, there are still peace talks taking place between Ukraine and Russia. The Kremlin uh, has been saying this week that not very much progress has been made. Is, is there much point to these peace talks or, or, or is it, as, as James has been describing, really about uh, Ukraine retaking territory? I mean, I don't think anyone would want to walk away from the peace talks. And I think that you've heard it from Boris Johnson. You've seen it from things that Liz Truss has said, that there is heavy scepticism over how seriously you can take the Russians in terms of peace talks, whether even if you agree, you had David Cameron um, writing in The Spectator recently in the diary about how what he remembers most from dealing with Putin is his barefaced lying, um, which obviously gives you a sense that even if suddenly there's agreement in the peace talks, I think there is um, a concern that how would you actually know Russia was really withdrawing or um, not planning to attack further, and therefore... I don't think too much can be staked on them, but there is a sense you have to keep them going to see what what can be found. I think there is generally a sense among its Western allies that until you no longer have Putin in charge, you're not really going to have a deal with Russia, but there can be some things that can mitigate or buy time, um, but this conflict's not going to end in a way which is uh, trustworthy or satisfactory until Putin is not there, but that could take a long time. And I think when it comes to uh, the Russia-Ukraine peace talks, it's quite hard right now to see what could be seen as a win for Putin, because he is going to have to have something he can say as a win, um, I think, for the Russians to go for it, while also having support from Ukrainians, particularly when there's talk of getting, you know, Ukrainian public to agree Zelensky might make a compromise but the rhetoric that Zelensky and others have been putting is you know Ukraine is and you see it in the speech today from GCHQ is that Ukraine is having a better war than anyone expected perhaps victory is near so therefore how does it actually go if you say well we're going to cede this part of the territory that would be quite a tricky pitch I think. James Liz Truss is in India today to try to uh, pressure Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi over his country's uh, weak position, support for uh, Russia over the past few months. Uh, her foreign trips in the run-up to the war didn't necessarily go to plan. Do you think this one is, is better advised? So I think you, you had to go and see Sergei Lavrov, but he was always going to behave in, in the way that he did. And I think in some ways the kind of Russian frustration was that, that, that she stood her, her ground there. I mean, I, I personally think there was a... I, I, I'm sceptical about how much benefit there was in talking to Lavrov, considering that I don't think he was particularly in the loop in terms of a decision-making. But you could argue that the price of Ben Wallace going to speak to the Defence Minister, who undoubtedly was, was that you know Liz Truss had to go and speak to the Foreign Minister. So in, in, in some ways you can say that that trip was a kind of necessary evil. I think on this trip, the interesting question is, can she begin to move the Indian position. The Indians were, the UK invited them to the G7 uh, last year, and a big argument that, you know, India should join this democratic alliance. And in the Indo-Pacific, you know, India is part of a quad with Australia, Japan and the US, which is aimed to kind of balance China. But on Russia, you know, India uh, abstained in the UN General Assembly vote, and is going to taking this opportunity to essentially buy cheap Russian oil because Russian oil is selling at a discount because other people don't don't want to touch it. But I think the the question is, how much of this is this the classic Indian non-aligned mindset coming out? How much of it is a reflection of the fact that India gets over two-thirds of its military kit 
from Russia and with all the maintenance that goes with that and that you're essentially not going to be able to peel the Indians off and get them to join more firmly with the global West un until you can offer them an alternative source of military equipment. But it, but it is uh, slightly a vicious circle because after AUKUS was agreed, there were kind of discreet points from the Indians basically saying, well, what about us? You know, we are threatened by China. We are also a, a UK ally and a US ally in the Quad. Essentially, the problem is that there is so much Indian-Russian military cooperation that, that there is no chance in, you know, and there's no chance on earth that the Americans will agree to that kind of technologically advanced kit being shared with the Indians. So how do you move the Indians from a military relationship that is heavily reliant on Russian kit? The Indians actually called an emergency medium accord over their ambivalent position on uh, the Ukraine crisis to essentially say, look, you know, the way we balance China is with Russian military kit. So... How, how how do you want us to do that if you basically want us to break relations with Moscow? So I, I think there is a question here, which is there is going to need to be some clever and creative diplomacy, which I think will it need to involve the UK, the US, Australia, other Western powers, essentially backfilling India's military needs if you are going to peel India off from its relationship with Russia. And finally, Katie, let's move to domestic politics, where we've got Labour launching their local election campaign today. What has Sir Keir Starmer and what has Angela Rayner been saying? So Keir Starmer has gone on cost of living, and I think this is where Labour, despite Partygate being bad this week, think that they ultimately can gain the most ground by highlighting the Tory response and what they see as inadequacies in it. And... Keir Starmer has said Labour will be on the side of voters, not particularly controversial statement. But when it comes to his attack lines, accused the Conservatives of giving a pathetic response to rising prices. And ultimately was saying that in the local elections, this was this opportunity for voters to let the Tories know that they're unhappy with their offer. Which I think is interesting because one of the things we've been talking about is is the local elections a judgment on Boris Johnson's leadership in terms of party gain? I think a month ago, that was very much what it seemed to be. But the fact that Labour think they're... Uh, bigger issues to be focused on for lots of voters um will think to suggest that even if you do get a bad result this starts to become about well should the treasury have done more does Rishi Sunak need to listen to Boris Johnson on you know bringing more measures and you, you can get into a different area in terms of obviously Boris Johnson is effectively the one in charge but you can start to see how, how things could move based on that and I think the other interesting thing in terms of the local election campaign starting is one of the things that we discussed many times in the podcast before is the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now the local election campaign has started in Northern Ireland there has been a sense that it'd be very unlikely that you would trigger Article 16 during that period because it would look as though you're politically inter intervening, uh, political intervention. Now, there are some Tory MPs who dispute that, but does that mean that has been parked now for a few months? We'll see. James? I think Katie makes a very interesting point about the protocol. I think there's an interesting question here, which is the, the subtle diplomatic play from the UK, rather than invoking Article 16 uh, now or straight away in May, is to f try and fold the protocol into these talks about getting the Assembly up and running again and the devolved institutions after the elections. That is going to be very, very complicated. And I think that you, but I think some creative diplomacy can start saying, well, look, hang on a second, if we're going to get these devolved institutions up and running, which are so important, then there will need to be something to reassure the unionist community on the protocol. Because right now, the combination of the likely dynamics of, of the Assembly after these elections and the protocol, I mean, it's, it's very hard to see how you would get power sharing going. Thank you, James.
Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening.